0: Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit OutreachChurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah, enjoying the last bit of summer and getting ready for school to get back in. And um, I, I just have a few, just a few things in my heart that I really want to share. And I, I had something I thought I was going to share this morning, but i I woke up with this really on my mind, is that the? I think we've complicated life somewhat. I was just thinking about, like, the simplicity of Jesus' life, that, that when you look at his life and the way that he lived, it was super simple. It wasn't complicated. When you look at the disciples, it said that they marveled at these men, for they, they saw them as unlearned men, yet they, they said that they must have been with Jesus, that there was something about their life that changed because they were with Jesus that didn't have anything to do with having everything figured out, It had everything to do with having one thing figured out, and they'd made Jesus Lord. And like, you know, I love to, to teach about all kinds of stuff, and I love the revelation that God gives, but, but if we're not careful, sometimes we can, we can get so caught up in chasing other revelation that we lose sight of the fact that this gospel really is simple. Like, all that other stuff is awesome. It's in there for a reason. All Scripture is given for edification and encouragement. And I love to teach, and, and you guys know that. But what I'm saying is, is that if we ever lose sight of the main thing, we become about so many other things. And, you know, Jesus said that about Martha. He said, he, said, he said, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. But Mary, she's chose this one thing, and it will not be taken from her. And he wasn't saying that the other things were bad. He wasn't like, Martha, you're doing evil things. In fact, there's places in the Word that talks about showing hospitality to people. And that's what she was doing. She was showing hospitality to Jesus. She's thinking, we need to cook for him. We need to to make the room ready for him. We need to do these things. And there's nothing wrong with those things in their place. But if those things become the thing, if Jesus is in the room and we're worried about other things, when Jesus is sitting there, our focus has become taken by something other than the one who's supposed to capture our attention at all times. And, and this is what he's saying to Martha. He says, Martha, you're worried about so many things. She chose one thing, and it will not be, as he's saying. Like, there was a time where I was sitting there in that room, and you could have chose to be with me. And in that moment, rather than choosing to be with me, you were off doing other things in the name of serving me. And there's a place for serving. There's a place for all these other things. But our first place is when he's wanting to be with us, that we're actually there with him. And then from that place, we can go and do all kinds of other things. But it's out of that place of being with him and intimacy with him and relationship with him that the doing flows. It, it, one doesn't make up for a lack of the other. In other words, like we don't have excuse to say, well, I don't do anything in life because I just sit with Jesus. If you sit with Jesus long enough, you'll go do plenty. You can't sit with him long enough before you start to feel his heart for people around you, before you start to see the world and see the need they have for Jesus. So so it's not that, well, I just sit with Jesus. Well, you can only sit with Jesus for so long before he gets up and starts walking and you have to follow him. A lot of people may be sitting in the place where he was thinking they're at his feet, but he's actually got up and he's moved. He didn't stay there with Mary forever. It's not like he was like, "Hey, I'm going to stay here forever." He said, "There was a time where the, where the thing to do was to sit and be with me, because that's what I was doing. I was sitting, I was speaking. You could have chose to be with me, and then you could do all these other things. There's always time for other things. There will always be another meal that needs to be made. There will always be a room that needs to be cleaned. There will always be a person that needs to hear the gospel. There will always be a sick person that needs to be prayed for. There will always be a discouraged person that needs to be encouraged. Those things will always be there. The, the, the deal is, is if we're not making sure that we're finding ourselves at his feet when the time to be with him is, is then, that we can either stay too long or not be there enough. And so one will, will come at the expense of the other. We'll either find ourselves constantly doing and never being fulfilled, or we'll find ourselves in a place of, of, of not doing the things that Jesus called us to do in the name of just being with him. And that's why it's so important that we're actually led by the Spirit of God so that we're in the places we're supposed to be doing the things we're supposed to be doing when we're supposed to be doing them. And so I i, I was th- I just was thinking about this. I, was, I, I say this all the time, but I really believe it's true and I feel like the Lord showed me this. One of the reasons we have so many problems in life is because we have so many answers. If our answers would become simple, life would become a whole lot simpler. When the answer is the gospel, like, like when... when I have, I have, Listen, I, I, for some reason, I feel like people think that like, we're anti-counseling at this church. Because I've heard people say, like, I know how you feel about counseling. I'm like, well, do you? Because if you did, you might not say that to me. I'm all for sitting with people and listening to them and hearing them and responding with truth and pointing them to the truth that maybe they're missing or finding where they believed a lie and replacing that with truth and showing them what God has said, what Jesus has said to them, what the Word of God has spoke to their situation. Like, I'm all for that. What I don't like is when we, in the name of Christianity, mix a bunch of worldly wisdom and psychology with it and then put a Christian bow on it by saying, and we're going to pray at the end of it. Because there's worldly wisdom out there that Jesus, that the word says is actually demonic. There's wisdom that comes from above, which is peaceful and gentle, which is pure. And then there's that which is other and it's worldly, it's sensual, it means it, it's driven by the senses, it's made to minister to what feels good. And so it's, it's driven by my senses or by my, my observations, what I've seen, what, what, what feels, and, and, and so we're, we're ministering to things that aren't true, to things that aren't truth. So what we're doing is we're validating a feeling and then we're responding to it by treating it with something that makes the feeling feel better. The problem with that is, is that if you're only doing as good as your feelings, you may leave feeling better in a moment, but you're set up to feel bad tomorrow when something new happens because you're living sensually. Come on. Like if, if the way that, that I am okay is by you making me feel better, then I'm only doing as good as your ability to make me feel something rather than being anchored in a truth that's greater than what I feel or what I see. Like that. that's, the, that's the, the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that it, it's anchored in something greater than what we see or what we feel or circumstances, and it's never changing, ever. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I can count on that. I can know that the truth that I find in him is not circumstantial, and I'm not going to walk out tomorrow, and a new truth is going to come along, and I'm going to have to completely readjust the way that I live because new truth has come, because he is the truth. And so that's when I say, like, I feel like we have so many problems because we have so many answers. I feel like we have, if we're not careful, we will start to try to minister to things that don't matter at the expense of the thing that does. And we can be about all these things rather than the one thing. The key's the answer, the gospel is the answer. I, I, I do, I've been doing every summer, I do a bunch of pre marriage counseling with, with, with couples because I marry a lot of couples. because... People fall in love and they they want to get married. And so they have this crazy idea that they should listen to me. No, really, you should listen to me because I've been married for 18 years and my marriage is better now than it ever has been and it's been good from the beginning. And not that we haven't had issues and not that we haven't had struggles, but I can promise you this. Marriage is the most amazing relationship between people that there is on earth and it is unbelievably good when it's lived out the way that God calls us to live it out. And, and so, but one of the first things I talk to people about when we do pre-marriage counseling, I talk to couples, because I at first ask them this question, why do you want to get married? And they all know it's coming now because they've heard it, so they all have the well-rehearsed outreach answer, because I, I want to spend my life laying my life down for her. I got to think of a new way to phrase it because they're all prepared for it, you know. But really, there's one reason to get married. It's because you find someone and you say, I want to spend my life pouring myself out, the overflow of the Father's love. I want to pour it out on them for the rest of my life to see them become everything that he created them to be. I want to, spend, I love them to the point where I, it's a joy for me to serve and to lay my life down for them. If there's any other reason that you get into it, it's temporal, and it could fade, and it could not be there tomorrow. And then why are you married if the things that you got married for are fleeting? If you got married for what you receive, what happens when you stop receiving? If it's a transactional relationship where I will do for you as long as you do for me, then what happens when they don't do? So you end up in doo-doo. In marriage, because transactional relationships are great when we're talking about a consumer relationship. You know, if you're trying to figure out, like, where's the best place to buy eggs? Where's the best place to get gas? You're trying to figure out, how can I give the least and get the most? That's awesome when you're talking about a retail transaction, maybe. But when you're talking about a relationship with a person, if your mindset is, How can I give the least to get the most? you'll end up living at other people's expense and you'll be doing what you're doing for the response that you get, not because it's an act of pure love. It's actually self seeking and self serving and it's not love to begin with. Don't get caught in a relationship that's just mutual manipulation exclusive mutual manipulation that's not a marriage well I will only manipulate you as long as you only manipulate me that's not what marriage is but that's what marriage turns into if people aren't dead to themselves and alive to Christ and actually living for others rather than for love from others if we're not living our lives completely fulfilled in him, we have nothing to give to begin with. So you wake up and your cup's half empty, and you're hoping that your spouse has enough to fill you up that day. And if they don't fill you up, then you become empty. Not only do you do you walk around not feeling fulfilled, but you have nothing to give because what you have, you give. And this and, and then suddenly you feel like you're not getting your Money's worth anymore. Because you're still doing, but they're not responding the way they used to respond. And you start to question in your mind, is it still worth it to do because what I'm receiving isn't quite what it used to be? And now all of a sudden, you're looking at your relationship and you're analyzing it like an economist, asking yourself, is it worth it to continue to expend because the effort, the juice, isn't worth the squeeze? And then we fall out of love. And then we question whether we actually loved each other to begin with. And maybe we married the wrong one. Or we can go into it saying that we're actually going to love the way that the word calls us to love. That we're going to lay our lives down for each other. And the most amazing marriage is when you have two people who are in it for the other person. Because it's a race to see who can lay their lives down the most. It's a race to see who can build each other up the most. It's a race to see who can make the other's day amazing by the overflow of the love of God that's inside of them. When you have two people whose goal is to be loved by him and to overflow that love to each other, you have this amazing relationship that is called marriage the way that God designed it to be. And it's not this thing where you wake up and, oh, man, it's the old ball and chain. No, you wake up and you know why you're alive. And then you go and live your life out of the overflow of being loved by him. That's why every single morning we should start our day by actually getting that fresh manna. Like every day you need the same thing you needed yesterday morning, but you need a new. You can't store yesterdays and just live on yesterdays. You actually have to every morning wake up and commune with him and receive from him so that you start your day from a place of being filled and overflowing rather than going out trying to find it in the course of the day at the expense of other people. If you start your day filled with him, you walk out the door full and ready to overflow. If you start your day in need and empty, then you walk out the door looking for someone to fill that void. And the first person that doesn't, it may catch something from you, but it won't be something that they want or that's worth giving. Every morning, wake up. And the first thing is communion with him. The first thing, I I, I wake up in bed in the morning, literally laying in bed. I haven't even moved a muscle. My eye starts to blink open. and You start thinking about him. Why? Because I realized that the only reason I woke up this morning is because he woke me up. And instantly I become thankful. Father, I thank you that you woke me up again, that I have another day on this earth. And all of a sudden now, because I've called him father, I start thinking about the fact that I'm a son. And now I'm rightly relating to him because I see him for who he is, which means I see me for who I am in him. Father, I thank you. Oh, and all of a sudden, it's like the words come out of your mouth. This is why, like what John was writing, he said, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. He didn't say that, that we should have a full barn, although you may have a full barn. He didn't say that we should have a good day, although you may have a good day. It was nothing like that. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should what? Be called the sons of God, and such we are. He's saying, listen, this is the most amazing thing, is that he would call us sons because that means we get to call him father. Mm-hmm. And so the first time that word comes out of my mouth in the morning, it's like, thank you, father. And all of a sudden you remember, oh yeah, that makes me a son. I have a father. He's perfect love. Oh, he, he sacrificed for me. He thought I was worth the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He thought that my life was worth the life of Jesus' life. He actually spent the life of Jesus to have me as his son. That's amazing. And then all of a sudden, your your, your heart starts to become so full of just this overjoyed love. Listen, I'm telling you, like this, this is something every morning you can do. It's it's not like a feeling thing. You don't just wake up every morning and the birds are singing and angels woke you up caressing your hair. Some mornings you just want to go back to bed, shove your head underneath the pillow, but I promise you, if you start by first putting your attention, your affection on him, and your eye becomes single, it means you're not looking around to everything else. You have one thing that you're staring at. You have one thing that you've said's caught your affection, your attention. If your eye is single, all of a sudden your whole body's flooded with light, and darkness can't stay. And you, you commune with him. That's that, that's that every morning. That fresh manna. Do you realize that there was a time frame for the Israelites to gather the manna every morning? I said that, that after a while in the morning, it would melt. In other words, there was a window of opportunity in the morning to get what they needed for that day. And it was first in the morning. Like, I'm not saying that, like, God's gone and He's like, no, I'm sorry, you didn't come to me first thing in the morning. I have no time for you. Maybe tomorrow. I'm not saying that, but I am saying there's something in this that's like a principle of his that says, look, I want to be the first thing you come and find in the morning. I want you to be fulfilled in me. I want the first thought on your mind when you get up is, I got to go to him to get what I need for the day, because if I don't, I'm going to have to wait until tomorrow, and I don't want to wait until then. And he's good and he's loving and he's kind. And yes, his presence is always with us. And yes, if you don't in the morning and you have a bad day and you just wake up with an attitude and the last thing you want to do is seek him and the first thing you want to do is find what's wrong with somebody else or, or grumble or complain or just be miserable, like you can choose that if you want to. You can. But realize that's a choice. Because you could have chose to deny yourself not live by your feelings. Not live sensually, which is demonic. You realize, like, that's pretty strong language when it talks about worldly wisdom. Wisdom that's not from him. Wisdom that is from, that is from anywhere apart from his wisdom. Like, the wisdom of God. And then every other wisdom, like, in the end, it's demonic. Why? Because it leads you away from him. And anything apart from him is evil. And so like you could choose in the morning if you want to, to wake up and and to just decide I'm going to have a bad day, but it's a choice that you have to make because goodness is following you, mercy is following you. You can run from it if you want to, but you have to actually run away from it because it's following you. If you just stand there for a minute and not think anything, like if you wake up in the morning rather than fixing your mind on things outside of him, if you just decided you were just going to lay there and not think anything, the spirit of God would begin to speak. Like you have to actually go away from it in order for goodness and mercy to not come and overtake you. Because they're following you. You stand there still long enough, they'll overtake you. If you would just lay there in the morning, literally, and not do anything. I mean, the best thing to do would be to start reminding yourself of truth. You know, That's what David said. He said, like, like, Bless the Lord, oh my. He's commanding his soul to bless the Lord. Why? Because our soul doesn't always feel like blessing the Lord. Like there's some mornings that you wake up and what you went to bed thinking about is the first thing on your mind and it's not him and you don't feel like blessing the Lord. And you look over and the reason you don't feel like blessing the Lord is laying next to you. (laughs) Because you were a little bit of an empty cup. Then they didn't quite fill you. I mean, no one in here, obviously. But, you know, you could imagine there's other people at other churches that do that. And certainly not pastors. But you could, he says, remind myself. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not his benefits. He starts going through this, this list of things that he's done. He says, who ransomed your life from the pit. Like, there's that, that fresh manna every day that comes from communion with him, but there's also a form of manna. You, you remember when, when, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and he gave them manna, there was the first, the daily manna that was fresh every day that they couldn't keep for the next day, except for when, they said he, when he said they could. You, you realize, like, like, that word that he gives you is for today, it's not for you to try to live off of tomorrow because tomorrow he wants you to come to him. Why? Because he wants relationship. He doesn't want you to come to him for a one-hit wonder and then go back to living your life oblivious to him. He says, no, I want to give you what you need for today but come back tomorrow because tomorrow you're going to need something more and I want to give that to you. Why? I want to be in relationship with you. I don't just want to have a wedding and then go our separate ways and claim that we're in a covenant relationship together. I want to actually spend every day together. I want to start every morning with you seeking me and finding me and so I'll make sure that what I give you today isn't enough for tomorrow because tomorrow I want you to be back here he set it up that way because he wants to be wanted by us and so there there is that that every single day seeking him that you can't live without but there's also the manner that he said I want this to be a testimony of what I've done for you put this in the ark and it stayed good it didn't go bad It actually was still fresh every single day. What was it? It was the testimony of what he's done. That's a fresh manna every single day in our lives that never goes stale. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. He starts going through these things, and what's he doing? He's saying, here's that manna that's a testimony that will stand the test of time, that never goes stale, that never goes wrong. This is something that will forever speak. He says, he ransomed my life from the pit, and you could just lay there in the morning, and you could just start thanking him. God, I thank you for what you've taken me out of and where you've placed me. And all of a sudden, you've got a thankful heart. All of a sudden, you're focused and you're fixed on him. And all of a sudden, because you are, you're not focused and fixed on other things. So you're not even seeing those other things that would vie for your attention and fight for your affection and try to steer you in a different direction because you're fixed on him. Father, I thank you for what you've done for me. God, you've so changed my life. I used to be this and now I'm this. I can't even imagine living the way you you, you feel like that. Like you can't even imagine living the way that you lived before you met him, before he came and changed everything. Now you're communing with him. That's communion with him. And you just lay there and just, just, just know like he's here. Father, I get to be with you today. You said that you'd never leave me or forsake me. Thank you, God. Father, I'm so thankful for the spirit of God, your spirit living and dwelling inside of me. Leading me and guiding me into all truth. And I'm, I'm going to get up in a little bit and I'm going to go out. And there's probably going to be people who need to hear from you, who need to see you today, who need to know you. Would you just make me aware of, of that? Would you, would you let me hear your spirit telling me what to do? He, you said he'd lead me and guide me into all truth. I trust you. I believe you. I just want to hear that. Let me be aware of what you're saying. And, and, and now all of a sudden you've started your day with truth. And now you go out and you actually happen to your day rather than going out and letting your day happen to you. You're not going out and deciding at the end of the day whether today was a good day or not. You wake up in the morning and decide today will be because it's another day to live for him. It's another day to know him and become changed and become more and more like him as I'm transformed from glory to glory into the image of his son, Jesus. This isn't like pie in the sky, like, you know, like, whoa, well, that's, that'd be a really great thing. No, this is how we're called to live. Like, this is literally the way that we're called to live. Open your Bibles up. I'll, I'll, I'll prove it. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And this was the, the, the scripture that just was burning in me this morning when I woke up. And it's Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's, he's writing to them. And, 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 and what he's talking to them about is their mindset. He starts off in in Philippians 2 talking about their attitude, the way that they think, and the why that they think. And, and, And so he says this, he starts out, he says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, if there's any of these things, make my joy complete. In other words, let me see the fulfillment of the thing that gave me the greatest joy, which was you receiving the gospel. Let me see the completion of that gospel in your lives. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Like, we could stop there. And when I say, like, life is, is, we have a lot of problems because we have so many answers, what if we just decided that rather than these being words on a page, this would become actually what life is supposed to look like for us, and we committed ourselves and submitted ourselves to this, rather than picking and choosing and deciding whether or not it was worth it in the moment, and giving ourselves permission to live less than the Scripture calls us to? What if we actually just said blank check yes to God? like literally gave him our yes. And then when we read the word, rather than deciding whether or not we were going to continue to give him our yes, we just lived in the yes that we've already given him. So we don't give ourselves permission to, to talk ourselves out of or to work our way out of these things. See, we've made the gospel about so many things and there is a lot of stuff that the gospel touches, a lot of areas of our lives. But in the end, it's pretty simple. Like Jesus said, follow me. And he gave us a pretty clear example of what it looks like to live the way he lived. And so, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. How many problems, like literally think of this through, how many relational problems could exist in the face of do nothing from selfishness or from empty conceit, but cons- and consider others higher than yourselves? You take your relational issues, and if two people who call themselves followers of Jesus, how could you ever have unresolvable conflict? It's not like we're reading out of different Bibles. You know, it's not like, well, there's 1,700 different versions of of Christianity out there. There's one Jesus. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Like, there's one. We're all supposed to be united by that. The expression of it looks different from place to place and from people to people. But the essence of the gospel and Jesus' call to follow him and deny ourselves and take up our cross is not different from person to person, from church to church, from, from region to region. It's the same. We're supposed to be united by one faith and in accord of one spirit. Never mind within one home. This should unite us with believers across the earth. But if it doesn't start in in myself, and it doesn't even work with the person who I've given my promise to God and to man that I'm going to, to live this way towards, how on earth is it going to affect anyone outside of that? This isn't a scold. This is to say, like, this is something we should hold up to people and say, like, when you say these words, there's, like, not only an expectation, but there's a grace on your life because you're born again, a new creation, and the Spirit of God lives inside of you to where you can actually joyfully live this way. And when it doesn't feel like a joy, you can choose it. Because how many of you know that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the pain of the cross, but it didn't always feel like a joy because he's in the garden saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from before me. What's he saying? In this moment, I don't feel like that's going to be fun. If there's any other way, I'd rather do that. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, sometimes joy is a choice rather than a feeling. I choose into joy. The feeling will line up at some point but I choose into it because I believe there's something greater than my feelings because otherwise my feelings are Lord, not Jesus. If I live by what I feel, then the only times I'm going to look like Jesus are when my feelings line up. But if I live by every word that proceeds from his mouth, then whether I feel it or not, my life will reflect Jesus. And that's why sometimes I have to deny myself in order to follow him because self would say, don't do that. That doesn't feel good. But you don't know what they've done. You don't know how they act. It's easy for you to say. Maybe it's not easy for me to say. Maybe it actually is one of the hardest things in the world to look someone in the face and give them the answer that comes straight from the gospel rather than say the thing that they want to hear that makes them feel good in the moment. No, it's not easy to say. In fact, I think the reason we have so many answers is because we want things to be easy to say rather than actually truthful sometimes. And so we say the thing that feels good in the moment and gets the response that we want rather than the thing that actually will change their eternity and is the response that Jesus gave. I I, I promise you, Like when Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. He's saying the only reason everyone, the only way everyone's going to be happy with what you're saying is if you tell them what they want to hear. Remember, we talked about the false prophets of old in a different place. He says, they said, peace, peace, where there was no peace. What's he saying? He's saying there's not, they won't tell the truth. They tell the thing people want to hear and they're well received by everybody and everybody speaks well of them. The problem is it doesn't change the fact that they're saying something that isn't true. And eventually you're going to live in the consequence of turning your back on truth and living as though there's peace when there isn't. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. The only way that everybody's going to like everything that you say is if you figure out what they want to hear and tell them what they want to hear rather than the truth that they need to hear. And no, that's not always easy. In fact, it's really hard sometimes to look at somebody. And, and listen, and I'm not saying you do it as a jerk, and I'm not saying you do it with an attitude, and I'm not saying, listen, if you're doing it to set someone straight, you, you're, the reason, your motive is so wrong that the truth that comes from your mouth isn't going to probably land in their heart the way that it should. It, because why? Because, remember, you do nothing out of selfish ambition. That means if I have a need to set you straight, I have selfish ambition, I shouldn't be doing that thing even if it sounds right coming out of my mouth. That means that's why I have to, above all things, guard my heart for from it flow the issues of life. In other words, I know why I'm doing the thing that I'm doing, and even if it looks good and holy to the world, if the reason behind it is selfish ambition, it's not something I'm supposed to be doing because I'm supposed to do nothing, no thing from selfish ambition. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. How many of the problems, like think about this. like I, I, It's fresh in my mind from talking through it with a bunch of people that are, that are getting married, but really, how many marital problems could withstand if both people submitted themselves to Philippians 2? Name a problem that could withstand that filter Of Philippians 2, which says, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's explaining to us, this is how Jesus was capable of living the life that he lived, it, it, uh, he doesn't say, well, he did it because he was God. And, and No, because if he did it as God and then said, follow me, he's giving us an impossible, frustrating command. Like if I hop in my car and take off down the highway and tell my son who can't drive, who doesn't have a car to follow me, that's an impossible command. And I would be a father who's frustrating my child because I'm calling him to something that he's not actually capable of. So when Jesus said, follow me, he was actually meaning, listen, not only is there a command there, but there's a grace when I say something that if you will say yes to it and step into it, there's a grace that makes it possible because I've never called you to something. Jesus has never called us to something that the grace is not there if we would step into it to say yes to that we're impo- that's impossible for us to do. So it's not this lofty thing that's way impossible, and it's like, well, he put the target here knowing that you would only get to there, but that was his goal. No, the goal is Jesus. He's the standard. He said, be like me. He said, follow me. He, the word says that those who claim the name of Christ must in this life walk as he walked. Not you should or you could. It says you must That's easy for you to say. No, I promise it's not. But it has to be said. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with thing, God a thing to be grasped. In other words, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard when uh, his time on earth as he walked this earth as a man he didn't regard equality with God something that for him to grasp. He laid his deity aside and emptied himself of his deity. Right here it says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It says for a time he was made even lower than the angels. For a time he was made even lower than the angels. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What, what if we settled in our in our hearts and in our minds that that if this was the thing that made Jesus capable of being Jesus, and the goal of our life is to become like Him, then we'll let this be the thing that rules. It reigns in our life, and we'll have this same attitude that he had. And that was what he just told us. Yeah. Don't do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit. Like, do no thing, because you're seeking after your own at the expense of another person. Nothing. Nothing. Like, literally, what if everyone who claimed to be following Jesus would just say, you know what, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live in the best that, to the best that I'm capable and let this filter decide whether or not I do something, and that's this. Am I doing this out of selfishness and empty conceit? In other words, is what I'm doing so that I can live or gain or get at the expense of another rather than laying my life down? and giving my life for others to live at my expense, like Jesus did for me. Well, then you're going to be used. How can you use someone who wants you to? Well, what if they don't respond? I promise you, if Jesus let what if they don't respond the way I want them to keep him from doing what he did, he never would have gone to the cross. Why? Because he told them before he went to the cross that in that day, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, works of iniquity? I never knew you. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I understand fully that there are going to be those that I'm going to actually pour my blood out for that are going to reject me and despise me, and I'm still going to do it because there's going to be those that don't. Well, I've been used so many times, why are we so cognizant of what people have done wrong in the past if love doesn't seek after its own and doesn't keep a record of a wrong suffered? Like, literally, I, this, I know, like, this isn't hallmark love. And there's a place for that romantic love between a husband and a wife. I'm not trying to sterilize it. Like, believe me, you, you start living your lives this way and watch the romantic hallmark love that comes into your marriage. That's a fruit of genuine love, not the purpose, not the goal. And so what if we did that? Like, and I just started thinking about like, how you could boil down so many things in life. Like, We could literally get rid of so many issues that weigh us down and keep us from actually walking the way Jesus walked. If we would just determine that for the rest of our lives, we're going to live with a filter, with an attitude, with a mindset. That means the way that I think, the way that I see, the way that I hear, the way that I feel even has to run through this. How can I feel this if I'm not being selfish? Like you realize that feelings are something that you actually have to give into and allow to stay. They don't rule you. You're supposed to rule over them. You're supposed to rule over your emotions. The only ones that you can't rule over are the ones that you were created to have, which is your response to the presence of God. When people saw him and they fell over, I promise you, there was nothing they could do to keep from falling over. When Isaiah sees him and says, woe is me, I am destroyed, for I am an unclean man with unclean lips among unclean people. I promise you, when he fell on his face, there was nothing he could do to control that. Why? Because that's a genuine emotion that you were created for, not a distorted, twisted emotion that you got from the fall of Adam. Well, if God wanted me to be that way, he wouldn't have created me this way. He didn't create you that way. Adam did. That's That's why you have to be born again and actually understand that Jesus didn't live by selfish feelings, then he called you not to live by selfish feelings. That's easy for you to say, no, it's not, but it's truth. So you're saying we become robots? No, I'm saying that we become love. Because there has to be a grace to live this way if we're called to live this way. It's not about being a robot and turning yourself off and saying, okay, I'm just not going to have any feelings Then no one can touch me. I don't feel, I'm not, are you kidding me? Don't. No, it's not that. It's, it's not that at all. It's saying I'm going to become love to the point where my response isn't out of selfish ambition. Like, I'm not, I'm not hurt because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. I'm not hurt for that reason. Like, my life isn't set up where I'm only doing as good as your response. My life is set up where I'm living in response to what's already been done for me by Jesus, and I'm living more aware of what he did than what people didn't. So I wake up fulfilled, and then if you happen to treat me well, awesome. If you don't, your bad day doesn't become my bad day. Your bad day becomes my chance to respond to you like Jesus responded to people who were having a bad day. Otherwise, your bad day becomes my bad day. And then I vent my bad day, and your bad day becomes worse. And then you vent your worst day, and my bad day becomes worse. And now we have two people who are living at the expense of each other, fueling each other's fire in a downward spiral rather than someone it would be great if there was both. But on the days when there's not, what if one person said, hey, that's not who you are. Something's wrong. You wouldn't, you don't, I know you, I know you don't feel that way about me. I know you don't believe that about me. I know that's not the truth that's in your heart. I know you better than that. What's going on? Just, just shut, you know what? Just shut up. No. No. Because I know you. This isn't you. What's going on? How can I pray for you? What does that look like? It looks like me laying my life down for you and allowing you to live at my expense rather than me trying to live at your expense. I don't need you to be okay. I want you to be okay, but I'm okay even if you're not because me being okay has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with him. I woke up okay. I didn't wake up trying to figure out if I'm going to be okay today by the way people treated me. Or the way people did things. And I want people to respond the way that Christ responds. And I want people to live the way that Christ calls us to live. And there's an expectation amongst Christians. There should be that we are all united by one faith. That we're united by one love. It says in unity of love. Meaning what? We all have the same ideal of love. We're supposed to have the same example of love. Which is Jesus. So that means there should be this expectation among believers. Of the way that we treat each other. And the way we respond to each other. But that expectation is fine as long as it's not a condition. See, where we go wrong is when expectation becomes conditioned and we say, not rather than that being an expectation that I have, that's a condition that I have where I'll only as long as you. That's where we lose the plot. And that's where we become vulnerable to living by feelings and emotions and and living only as good as the people around us are treating us rather than living in the overflow of what he's done for us. What if the first thing on my mind in the morning when I woke up was him? Father, thank you that you woke me up for another day i just, I'll, I'm, I'm going to close up with this because I'm out of time. I didn't get to, I come up here with notes all the time, and and I sometimes just think God thinks it's cute because I really think some days I'm like, all right, God, I'm going to preach this message. And, and he's probably like, yeah, sure you are. But, but I woke up with this in my heart, and, and I, I do want to close with this, is that Having this mind in us, which was also in Christ, having this attitude in us, which was also in Christ, isn't something that happens automatically when you become born again. Being born again makes it possible. But it's not an automatic, and it's not something that will happen without you actually intentionally choosing to live with the attitude and mindset that Christ lived with. In fact, what's natural even after you're born again, there's this pull. There's this pull that's going to want to take you towards selfishness unless there's something that's keeping you from going there. And that thing that's keeping you from going there is him. So if you just wake up and you don't go get your daily manna, you may make it today. Like if they didn't go eat in the wilderness one day, they'd be okay the next day. They could just go and they could get manna that next day, and they'd be okay. They might not have been quite as capable that day as they normally were because they didn't get something to eat that morning. They didn't have their strength renewed. But, but they could make it. But if the next day they, they didn't go and get that manna, they could probably make it that day too. It's like they're going to drop dead. But they're not going to be who they could be. They're not going to be who he desired them to be. They're going to start feeling the effect of it. They might be a little bit more short-tempered and cranky. They might have a little less patience with others. They might start walking around with a little bit of irritation or an edge to them. But they'll live. They'll live. If the next day they don't go get food, it's only three days. You can, you can go three days without food. But you're not nearly who you could have been. And the people that interact with you that day aren't getting the best version of you. They're getting actually a mutation of you. By the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and however many days you could go, before you actually fall over and die without it. Every one of those days, you're alive, but you're not fully alive. And this is the danger, I think, sometimes, in if we're not actually seeking him every single day, is that we do wake up the next day. Like, we don't drop over dead. And it's, it's a slow thing where it's like, after a while, we've become this different version of ourselves than we're supposed to be because we're not actually starting our day being fulfilled by him. And so we go out into the day empty, hoping that we can find something to fill us along the way. And so sometimes that looks like serving so that we receive. So, so I'll serve, but I'm not even serving you out of an overflow. I'm serving you because I have a need, and I realize that if I do something for you, there's a chance that you may look at me and respond with a kind word, with encouragement. Look, all those things are great, but if I'm I'm doing what I'm doing for that, I'm not following the example of Jesus. I'm actually living with selfish ambition. Here's the problem, is that if I'm doing what I'm doing out of an overflow of love, if you thank me, that's awesome. It encourages me, and I love that. And that's good. The Bible says to do that. But if you don't, I'm still okay because I wasn't doing it for your encouragement and your thanks. I was doing it for you not for what you would do for me in response. And if we don't start our day fulfilled in him, we'll look throughout the rest of the day to find something or someone to fill us. And the world is all too happy to present to us many different things that offer to fulfill us. The problem is none of them will satisfy. Every one of them will leave you just as empty as you started. If we woke up every morning and we just settled a few things in our heart, like literally, it's not legalistic. You're not saying I do this so that I can be approved of by God. No, I'm doing this out of knowing I have his approval, and so I want to get my heart and my mind into position to live the way he's called me to live every single day. It's the same reason why you put on pants and, or, or you know, clothes before you walk out of the house. It's not because you can't walk out of the house without them. It's because you need them to go out and do the things that you're called to do that day. In the same way, like I need to get my heart and my mind right. Sure, I could leave and go out the door without it, but I need to get my heart and my mind right so that I can actually do what I'm called to do that day. If I started every day with that, what if I opened up Philippians and just reminded myself every day this was the attitude that Christ lived with? He did nothing out of empty conceit or selfish ambition. Esteemed others more highly than himself. What if I just settled that in my mind? I'm going out into a world that owes me nothing. I've been loved by him. I've been called by him. I've been accepted by him. He calls me his son. The world owes me and can offer me nothing. In fact, other people today, their needs are more important than my own because my needs have been met by him. We started that day, every day. Like it would, before you even left your house, what could go wrong at home if you're not alive for you and living selfishly? but you're esteeming your spouse and your children more important than yourself, what could possibly go wrong? And then once you leave your house, like the interactions you have with people, what could possibly go wrong if you actually lived that way? What could stand when someone gets angry and says something harsh and you have a kind word that turns away wrath rather than an angry word that fuels the anger? So, Father, would you just... God, would you put in our hearts this desire, God, not just to know that this is something you've said to us, God, but would you put a desire and a hunger inside of us to desire to live this way, God, that it wouldn't feel like a burden or an obligation, God, would you put the joy, would you set the joy before us so that we can do these things because of the joy that's set before us rather than the obligation that we feel hounding us, Father. Would you make this a joy and put a grace on our lives to do these things and to live this way, God that we would lay our lives down for other people, that we would live not at the expense of others, God, but we would live for others. God, that we wouldn't be walking around hoping that somebody has a worm for our open mouth, God, but that we would be people who walk around full of you, looking for places to overflow. I thank you for that, God. I thank you just for convicting us about the simplicity of the gospel, that it really is as simple as new life in Christ, born again, All things passed away, dead to sin, alive to Christ, denying self, saying yes to Jesus. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.